It is human nature to focus more on immediate causes than ultimate causes. But behind these human causes, behind the sibling rivalry and the angry jealousy, there is a divine cause. Think all the way back to Genesis 15. Way back in Genesis 15, in the time of Abraham, Joseph's great-grandfather, God said this, Genesis 15, 13 to 14, Know for certain that your offspring, speaking to Abraham, will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possession. So God told Abraham way back in chapter 15 that this would happen. He didn't tell him how, but he told him for certain that this would happen. So history may look whimsical at times. It may look dependent upon human actions for good or for ill. But ultimately, all of history, personal and global, is governed by the word and will of God. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. I love the idea that behind all the ups and downs of history, personal and global, God is working his plans and purposes. That is such a comfort to us, particularly when we find ourselves going through the sorts of things we've been going through recently. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 37. As I mentioned at the close of our last chapter, chapter 37 begins a new unit, the last unit in the book of Genesis. Chapters 37 to 50 tell the story of Joseph and the sojourn into Egypt. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, we continue to pile up arguments against polygamy in this story as we see the rivalry between the wives of Jacob passing on and becoming the rivalry of their children. Joseph was the son of the favorite wife, Rachel, and Israel loved him more than any of his other sons. Okay, that is bad parenting. Now, Jacob came by it honestly. His mother, Rebekah, loved him more than his brother Esau. And his father, Isaac, loved Esau more than him. So this particular flavor of stupid has a long history in this family. And here we see it ripening into an act of terrible violence and betrayal. Moms and dads, note this well. If you treat your kids differently, 
you will set them up for conflict with their siblings and sorrow in the world. Don't do it. Verse 5 goes on to say, Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaths in the field, and behold, my sheath arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaths gathered around it and bowed down to my sheath. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now, it should be noted that Joseph's dreams were accurate. They were clearly from the Lord. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to decode this dream. Joseph would become a ruler and a deliverer of his brethren. The symbol of the sheaves is a symbol of the fact that he will feed them and provide for them in his role as deliverer. So the dream is accurate, but it was probably unwise of Joseph to share the dream with his brothers. Contrast the attitude of Joseph to the attitude of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Paul was so careful with his special revelations that he didn't even want to talk about them. When he felt forced to talk about them, he spoke in the third person. He said, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Now, we know that Paul is talking about himself because that he says that a thorn in the flesh was given to him to keep him from being conceited on account of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Joseph would have been well served by such a thorn in his flesh because he did become conceited. And unlike Paul, he did speak about the things he had seen, and he probably should not have. Verse 9 says, Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. So Jacob had a sense that there was more to these dreams than just the grandiose ambitions of a spoiled child. There was something of God in these dreams. And so he kept the matter in mind. Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here if I can, because I find this whole dream narrative to be absolutely fascinating. You said in the program audio that these dreams Joseph was having were definitely sent by God. They foretold things that as we keep reading, we're going to see did actually come to pass. And yet you also said Joseph was probably unwise in sharing them the way that he did. So I guess the question is, are dreams real? And if they are real, how should we handle them in the Christian life? Well, that's a good question. And I think at the pastoral level, it's a necessary question. I know I've been asked many times by congregants in my church about different dreams that people have had. People want to know if this is just bad pizza or is God (laughs) trying to tell them something? And if so, what should I be doing about that? First thing I would say here is that we shouldn't dismiss dreams out of hand. I've heard some people say that God used dreams in the Old Testament, but he doesn't do that anymore. 
Well, I'm not sure how you could support that statement biblically, because in the first two chapters of the New Testament, there are dreams all over the place. Joseph has a dream telling him not to divorce Mary. And then the wise men have a dream telling them not to report back to Herod as to where the baby was born. And then Joseph has another dream telling him to flee to Egypt. So again, I don't know how you could argue that, although I've heard it said many times. And it isn't just prior to the day of Pentecost that people are having dreams. Some might say that after the giving of the Holy Spirit, we won't need dreams anymore. But apparently, nobody told the Holy Spirit that. Because in Acts 16, the Apostle Paul has a dream, a vision of the night telling him to cross over into Macedonia. So I don't think there is a Bible verse that would give us grounds for saying that God can't or no longer does provide direction and encouragement to people via dreams. What I would say is that dreams should never be treated as a co-equal authority to Scripture. So if you have a dream that is telling you something that is contradicted by a Bible verse, go with the Bible verse. Because the devil can give you dreams and expired pizza can give you dreams, (laughs) but God never contradicts his word. I would recommend taking the approach suggested by the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 to 21, where he says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. So don't discount dreams per se. Don't put God in a box and start telling him what he can and cannot do, but test everything. Take everything back to Holy Scripture. And do like the Apostle Paul did in 2 Corinthians 12. He didn't feel comfortable talking about all that he had seen, so maybe sometimes we should just keep what we've seen to ourselves, shouldn't we? That's the mistake Joseph made. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Sometimes a dream is just for you. In fact, I'd say most of the time a dream is just for you. It is God providing special guidance, like with Joseph and with the wise men in Matthew 1 and 2. So you don't need to tell anybody about that. And in fact, it was telling everybody about that that got Joseph into trouble. A friend of mine has a saying that I like. He is always saying that it is hard for God to bless a sinful people. I think what he means by that is that we are so sinful, we are so prone to arrogance and boasting and exaggeration that it is hard for God to bless us. Whatever he gives us, we are likely to distort or exploit to our own advantage. So he has to meter out his gifts in proportion to our growth and maturity. And I think that applies to all blessings, but it especially applies to blessings of a supernatural character. When a blessing like that is given to an immature believer, it puffs them up. They want to tell everyone. They want to buy a white rhinestone suit and fill a stadium with people they can impress and amaze. And that isn't helpful. That draws attention away from the bigger story of what God is doing to save people eternally and entirely through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So, like the Apostle Paul, we should be careful with this stuff, and we should be aware that if God exalts us with something like that, he will probably also have to send something, some kind of thorn in the flesh, to nail our feet down to the floor. All right, that's super helpful. I'm definitely using that line, too. It is hard for God to bless a sinful people. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 12. Verse 12. Now, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, 
and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Reuben is such an interesting character in this story. He, he's already ruined his life, you might say, and thrown away his birthright by protecting his mother and defiling his stepmother, Bilhah. He's obviously a very complicated man. He's a, he's a conflicted man. He's fiercely protective, but utterly unscrupulous. And, and it is just so interesting to watch how God works in his life over the course of the story. Do yourself a favor and remember all of the names of the brothers as they are mentioned in the story. Remember what they do at the beginning and then see who they are at the end. God is working in the hearts of these men. Thanks be to God. Verse 25 says, Then they sat down to eat, and looking up they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites, coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Now, it is so easy to get caught up in the movement of this story and the human drama of the story and to think that the Israelites ended up in in Egypt because of how certain brothers treated another brother, right? They sold Joseph into slavery, and they took him down to Egypt. It is human nature to focus more on immediate causes than ultimate causes. But behind these human causes, behind the sibling rivalry and the angry jealousy, there is a divine cause. Think all the way back to Genesis 15. Way back in Genesis 15, In the time of Abraham, Joseph's great-grandfather, God said this, Genesis 15, 13 to 14, Know for certain that your offspring, speaking to Abraham, will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 
but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possession. So God told Abraham way back in chapter 15 that this would happen. He didn't tell him how, but he told him for certain that this would happen. So history may look whimsical at times. It may look dependent upon human actions for good or for ill. But ultimately, all of history, personal and global, is governed by the word and will of God. Yes, Joseph is in Egypt because he was an arrogant little jerk. Yes, Joseph is in Egypt because his brothers are jealous, insecure, violent brutes. Yes, Joseph is in Egypt because Jacob is a bad dad and permitted and encouraged unhealthy rivalries in his family. Yes, yes, yes. But ultimately, Joseph is in Egypt because God is working a plan. It is a plan to do good and not to do, not to do evil. It is, a, it is a plan to save and not to kill. God is sovereign enough to do that. He is sovereign enough and all-knowing enough to use even our evil actions to bring about his saving good. Thanks be to God. Verse 29 says, When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? And they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat. By the way, isn't it ironic that Jacob is deceived by a goat? They took Joseph's robe. They slaughtered a goat. They dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. By the way, notice too, your son's robe, not our brother's robe. Reminds you of the prodigal son story. Verse 33. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments, put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. I love what Matthew Henry says here. Joseph dreamed of his preferment, but he did not dream of his imprisonment. Thus, many young people, when they're setting out in the world, think of nothing but prosperity and pleasure and never dream of trouble. Joseph wasn't wrong, but he was short on some of the details. He would rise to prominence. He would be used of God to feed and deliver his family, but only after he passed through prison, slavery, hardship, injustice, delay, and deprivation. God knows how to preserve his people, and he knows how to prepare his people for challenges and responsibilities they could never begin to dream of or imagine. And no story illustrates that better than the story of Joseph in the land of Egypt.
Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, that Matthew Henry quote was absolute gold. I want to read it again in case any of our listeners missed it. He said, quote, Joseph dreamed of his preferment, but he did not dream of his imprisonment. Thus, many young people, when they're setting out in the world, think of nothing but prosperity and pleasure and never dream of trouble, close quote. Oh, that is fantastic. And I think it's a reality that most of us can relate to. None of us anticipate the hardships that God uses to prepare his people. We see the end product. We believe that we'll be blessed and we'll be healed, but we often miss the timeline and skip right over the process and the pain in our perspective. In a sense, is that one of the ways that we can benefit from reading a story like this one? Absolutely. It's sometimes said that we read the Bible to learn about God, to learn about us, and to learn about how God saves us through the life and death of Jesus. So these stories are telling us the truth. We're supposed to read the story and say, okay, I see that now. God plays the long game. God is in control. God sometimes presses us down to lift us up. God sometimes allows us to get knocked down a peg or two so that we can learn humility. That's something God does. And and so that should, if we're paying attention, that should make us more realistic as people that should help us not get freaked out when something like this happens in our own life. We should be able to integrate that into the wider framework of what we know about God and how he works out his purposes of salvation. Mm, That is so good. I want to ask you too about this whole issue of providence and how God works in history. You said in the program audio, on one hand, Joseph ends up in Egypt because, well, he did some silly things. He was arrogant. He was a bit of a tattletale. And he ended up in Egypt because his brothers were jealous, vindictive, and violent. But at the same time, you said that Joseph went to Egypt because God had promised that would happen way back in Genesis 15 to Joseph's great-grandfather Abraham. So how does that all go together? How can it be Joseph's fault and God's will all at the same time? Well, that's one of the great theological mysteries in all the Bible. The Bible doesn't explain that. It just keeps saying it over and over and over again. The Bible says two things that our little brains struggle to reconcile. It says that people make real choices for which they are held responsible. And it says that God ultimately ordains and orchestrates events such that his sovereign will is perfectly and reliably accomplished. How exactly does that work? We are not told. We are just told that it does work. People are responsible and God is in control. Maybe the clearest example of this comes to us in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, closed quote. Did you hear that? Peter says to the people, you did it. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And he also says that Jesus died according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So you did it and God willed it. He says both of those things in the same sermon. He says both of those things in the same sentence. But he does not explain how they go together. Nowhere in the Bible is that explained, which is why we refer to it as a mystery. It isn't a contradiction. It's just something that our minds, trapped in space and time as we are, struggle to understand. But it's true. 
and we need to know that. We are making real decisions. God isn't forcing you to sin. You are making you sin. Your heart is doing that. You are making real choices for which you will be held accountable. And yet, God has a plan. And his plan is going to be accomplished, and he will bring about his purposes, sometimes by working through us. That's the best option. Sometimes he works around us, and sometimes he works despite us. But one way or the other, the will of the Lord will surely come to pass. Oh, amen. That is such good news. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 